This podcast was produced and recorded by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church of Ocala, Florida. This is a collection of sermons and talks by our founding pastor, Ted Strawbridge. These recordings were salvaged from cassette tapes dating back to the 90s. We hope you enjoy. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Verse 12. Actually, I'll begin with verse 10 then. When the apostles returned, they reported Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we're in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. Uh, Peter just answered that he was the Christ of God. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, again, as we come before Your Word, we stand before the holy angels. We stand before the watching eyes of all those who are in heaven. Father, and we promise that if You will come and if You will be with us in a special way by Your Holy Spirit, we will remember to give You honor and praise and glory that is due. Father, we depend upon You to come and meet with us. We can't strut into Your presence. We can't require You to do anything that You haven't promised. We ask You, like children, humbly to come and meet with us and to teach us. We pray that the words of the Scripture would reveal Yourself to us, that we would 
uh, know and understand. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And as we read the very revelation of Yourself, we would be able to understand. Father, we pray as we've prayed before that the Holy Spirit would come in the back door, as it were, to find those places where we're calloused, where we're hardened, where our pride would uh, lead us not to hear. Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would work. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We had presbytery yesterday in Deland, and it, and it was a very good presbytery. One of the men called on to pray early uh, when we began the service, be, stood up and he prayed a very real prayer, and he prayed a confession of how dark the week had been for him, of how blue he felt in his soul, how weak he was, and how uh, sorely he was just hanging on. And uh, I pulled him aside later on. He's a church planter. And I said, tell me about your week. <clears throat> and he said, well, one of my main leaders met with me this week. And uh, he said uh, that I was arrogant and proud and, and driving you know, over people to get what I wanted to accomplish. And uh, it really hurt. And it was hard. And I could sense in his spirit uh, brokenness. Uh, because part of what the guy was sharing with him was true. And I sense in my spirit that part of what we've been doing in worship tends at times to become so Ted-centered. There are lots of good reasons why it happens that way. That we're too busy or, or there's pressure because, you know, it's the same thing that used to make my mother clean the house for three weeks when somebody was coming. You want everything to be dressed up and nice. And so in a sense, there's a real uh, pressure to start out up here. And I want to hype. So to look around and make sure that everybody's okay and everybody's having a good time and everybody's getting something here. Boy, that's just the quickest way to cut off the spirit. And um, I, I, I really appreciated the Jim Whittle, the brother, sharing that in his prayer and then later on. And I don't want us to become a fellowship that will allow those kinds of things to happen without being able to say, wait a minute, what do we do? something seems a little off here. My question this morning, my introduction to the sermon is, is your job worth your life? Is your job worth your life? I tell kids, I can tell kids all the time, honestly, let me tell you what your dad did. This is what your dad did. Your dad went to high school and he was told he should get good grades because he needed to get into college. And he was told that he needed to get good grades in college so that he could get a job. And he was told that he needed to get a job. He needed to get good grades because he needed to get a good job and he needed a good job because he needed to buy a house because he needed to have two cars and a house for his family so they could all be happy. So your parents started that process a long time ago and somewhere along the way your dad quit wondering whether it was worth it all or not. He just took a deep breath and took, went underwater and started swimming as far as he could <clears throat> and he never really stopped to ask whether his job was worth it. I was invited to come, don't laugh out loud, you can laugh inside. I was invited to come and help uh, train an office staff in management 
<laughs> I said not out loud, okay? Um, that's not really true, okay? And I, and I, can, la- I can enjoy your laughter when we talk about management because I don't care about management much. Um, I, was, I did get to go and talk to them about leadership. There's a big difference between leadership and management. And what I can tell kids is, your parents have become good managers. They're managing their way through life. And somewhere along the way, your dad is finally going to wake up and wonder if what he's doing is good or worth it. He may be doing it very well. That's management. But he's almost lost the desire even to ask the question, is what I'm doing worth it? Maybe you've heard the story, you know, the Apple computer guy, the guy who developed Apple computers, and he knew he had this tremendous product, and he also knew he had no idea how to get it out there to the millions of people who needed it. And so he went to the chairman and chief executive officer, as I understand this story, went to the chief executive officer of Pepsi. And he stole that guy. And he did it with one question. He said, when you look back on your life, Would you rather be the world's best seller of sugar water with fizz in it? Or would you rather have been a part of giving computers to a a country that changed the world? I didn't tell the story very well, but you're beginning to see, I hope, the question. Um, When we went in there and I started speaking to this staff and I could say to the secretary, you know, you're really frustrated. I can tell you're frustrated. I can tell you're having a hard time keeping up in enthusiasm for your job. Why do you think that is? Et cetera, et cetera. We go through this process. I can tell you why it is. Because her understanding of her job is that she works for her boss. And her understanding of his boss's job is that the job is there to make her boss money. And so the end goal... The highest goal for her is to be a secretary in a business that makes money for her boss. And that's not a worthwhile way to spend your life. If the job that the boss has isn't producing something that's going to make the world better. Something that God has called this man to do and to be. We need to be able to ask ourselves, is what we're doing worthwhile? Why do you do your job? Maybe that's where we could start. Why do you do your job? What's the goal of your job? Not management, not do you do it effectively. What is the purpose of your job? What is your station in life and how does it function? Are you going to wake up 30 years from now and look back and wonder, well, I got the house, got the wife, got the kids. What difference did I make? Not just on the job, we need to ask that in the church too. Is your church worth it? What is your church doing? What is its purpose? When we come to this passage, as I skip through those paragraphs in Luke, Luke is alternating in story, back and forth, be from Jesus' relationship to the disciples to questions about who Jesus is. Next week, we'll look at three things. who the world thinks Jesus is, who the church thinks Jesus is, and who God thinks Jesus is. But this morning, we're looking at three situations where Jesus demonstrates to and through His disciples what the church is all about. Come back with me. 
to Luke chapter 9 and verse 1 through 6. And um, in the stories of Luke, the disciples have been with him for some time. They've seen him do all kinds of things, healing diseases, um, ministering to people, preaching in the synagogues. And now we come to Luke chapter 9 where Jesus sends the disciples out. When Jesus had called the twelve together, that is, some of them returned. They didn't stay with Jesus all the time. Some of them went back to their homes and traveled back and forth. And they spent some time with him, but they also had, some of them had homes and families that they were also with. But when Jesus called them together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. First of all, I think what the gospel writer Luke is trying to say to us is writing for generations of people after him. You remember that he's writing in 65 or so. You remember that Paul has already written some of his books, that churches have been planted. And Luke tells us at the beginning, he lays this thing out and he says, to you most excellent Theophilus, I'm writing blah, blah, blah. It seemed good for me to give a chronological account. Not a chronological account, an ordered account. Because I wanted you to know the certainty of those things that you believe. Luke is saying to the church, I want to write the stories of what Jesus did to present an orderly account so the church can understand what the church is supposed to be. And he's a good writer. And he's writing now, and he tells this story, I think, because he wants the church to see what Jesus had his disciples out doing so the church could know what its function was all about, what its purpose was. The first thing that the church is to be involved in is the verbal proclamation of the gospel. The first thing that Jesus does, the first thing that Luke records that Jesus does with His disciples is He sends them out. Mark tells us it's two by two. He tells them in Luke, don't take an extra tunic, don't take sand, just, just go. When you come into a town, don't move all around the town. Stay in one place. Stay there. Don't make a big profit skimming off of everybody. Stay in one place and preach the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me, let me turn there uh, briefly. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, Paul writes, For what I received, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Paul tells us not only the facts, the fact is Jesus died, but the interpretation by the Holy Spirit given to Paul is an understanding that Jesus not only died, but He died according to the Scripture and for our sins. Paul says, I preach to you of first importance. When Jesus sent out the disciples, when He sent out the twelve and He told them to go, what did He tell them to do? Preach the Gospel. The good news, the good story. Tell the story of God's redemption. The church ought to be telling the story of God's redemption. But you need to also notice that the writer Luke, 
as he's describing salvation to us, as he's describing the coming Messiah, this one, the Christ, and he tells us what Jesus is all about, every single time that we see Jesus with people, he's not only communicating to them information, but he's ministering to their needs. Again, chapter 9. One, when Jesus called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. One of the reasons that we don't see masses of conversions is because our understanding of preaching the gospel is thrusting information down people's throats. And we miss this, that the Messiah came to seek and to save the lost. And he was a servant of people. Um, you see that when they went out, when Jesus sent them out, they didn't just go out communicating information. They went out and they healed people's diseases. And they drove out demons. And they preached the gospel. It is a false dichotomy to say that the conservative evangelical church only preaches the gospel and the liberal evil church only does good deeds. The church is, does both. We communicate the gospel when we serve other people. Preach the gospel all the time. And if have to, use words. All the way through the gospel of Luke, over and over and over, Jesus is not only preaching the kingdom of heaven, and it's coming, but He's healing people. He's ministering to people. Acts 8.35, uh, you find the story of Philip, and he comes and, he, and he's everywhere preaching Jesus. He preaches Jesus. When the disciples went out, they went out and they preached the good news and they ministered to people's needs. The church everywhere ought to be involved in the verbal proclamation of the gospel, which involves ministering to people's needs. Secondly, um, Luke chapter 9, verses 12 through 17. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him. This was after a lot of people had come to see Jesus. They were tired. They were exhausted. The disciples had come back. They were so ecstatic, but they'd been all over the place. Word had gotten out. Even Herod the Tetrarch had heard of it. They come back to Jesus. They're exhausted. Jesus takes them away to Bethsaida intentionally to get away, to get alone and spend some quiet time with his disciples. But the crowds followed him anyway. So as the crowds are coming, even though they're exhausted, even though they're tired, Jesus welcomes the crowd to him and he teaches them again. It says, verse 11, the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place. The way out in the middle of nowhere. And the disciples are saying, Jesus, we were tired when we came here. Let's give these people a break. Release them, let them go. End the sermon a little early so they can go find some food. 
Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. Then watch what he does. They only had five loaves and two fish. But Jesus said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. <clears throat> Is your church worth it? Is your church not, not good shepherd, although we need to ask about good shepherd? But what is the church to be doing? First of all, the church ought to be involved in the verbal proclamation of the gospel. Secondly, Jesus is teaching the disciples like you would teach a little child. He's training them. He's showing them what they ought to be doing. What does Jesus do? He stands before the people. He lifts up the bread. He gives thanks to it. Thanks to God for it. And He breaks it. And then He gives it to the disciples. And He's teaching them. This is what the church ought to be doing. Here, disciples, now you go take and feed these people. The church ought everywhere, everywhere that we see the church in the New Testament, it's always involved in the verbal proclamation of the gospel, and it's always involved in sharing Christ's love within the body. Jesus is saying, disciples, Luke is writing to people, to his audience, saying, church, this is what we are to be about. Jesus takes the bread, gives thanks, gives it to the disciples, and says, here, now give this to the people. Jesus takes a towel, and He gets down and He washes the disciples' feet. And He says, the slave is no better than the master. I've given you a new example. Love one another. The church everywhere ought to be involved in the verbal proclamation of the Gospel, and it ought to be involved in sharing Christ's love especially within the body of believers. You are doing evangelism when you share Christ's love with other believers. How will all men know that you are my disciples? The great evangelist said, because you have love one for another. When we practice evangelism, we practice evangelism by sharing love in the body of Jesus Christ. And were we to share love in the body of Jesus Christ the way that Christ designed for us to do, we couldn't hold those doors closed for people who would want to come in here. We tried to emphasize small groups in this ministry because we're committed to the idea that as those small groups naturally minister in the relationships of love and fellowship that they form, watching non-Christians who are friends of people in those groups will see what's going on and they'll think, you know, something's different here. These people actually care for each other. I know that lady's as exhausted as I am. In fact, her kids are worse than mine. And yet she keeps talking about this small group and this sharing time and this fellowship. That creates an inroad for the gospel. Jesus healed people who did not believe. I believe that disciples fed people who did not believe. The church ought to be feeding people as it proclaims the gospel and it ought to be loving within the body of believers. Finally, 
um, I think the church everywhere in the New Testament, every church that you see in the New Testament, as you trace it, you'll find that church involved in the verbal proclamation of the, bo- of the gospel, in sharing Christ's love within the body, and in the practical application of the scripture to life. Luke tells these stories in a string. They're like a necklace. They're not, un- they're not beads rolling around on the floor unconnected. He gives them bead after bead after bead to show us what the church is to be like. We're to be the verbal proclamation of the gospel. We're to be involved in sharing Christ's love within the body. And finally, we're to be involved in the practical application of Scripture to life. Luke chapter 9, verses 21 to 27. After Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus strictly warns him not to tell anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Everywhere, the church ought to be radically involved in applying the lessons that Jesus gives, the stories that are in the New Testament of churches and the stories that are in the Old Testament, God's revelation of Himself to the people of Israel. Always, constantly, the church ought to be involved in the proclamation of the gospel, in sharing Christ's love within the body, and finally, in the practical, day-to-day application of Jesus to life. And Jesus says, if you're going to be in the church, if any man would be in the church, this is what he must do. He must deny himself. He must take up the cross. And he must follow me. Three things. Deny himself, take up the cross, follow me. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy and not caring. To deny oneself is not to sit there and grow hungry and cold. To deny oneself is to look beyond yourself and to serve others. To look beyond yourself and to be willing to allow God to examine your heart. Not to just sit there and do without. It's not just a non-active word. It's an active word. Denying yourself is not just going without. It's denying your pride so that you're willing to recognize the greatness of the Savior and your total dependence upon Him. The disciples had probably seen many people take up their cross. They understood that taking up the cross was a one-way trip. It was when the Roman soldiers gave the cross to the one who was going to be crucified and he carried his cross up to the hill. Jesus says, if anyone would be a follower of mine, he must deny himself the pride, the arrogance that he can make it on his own. He must take up the cross, not literally, but he must put his own self to death 
the power of the Holy Spirit and follow me. When we began, we talked about your job and whether your job is worth it. And I asked at the little management leadership seminar training thing, I asked the people that were there, the secretaries, the doctors, what is it that you want? What do you really want? I mean, what in your heart is your bottommost desire? If you could get through all the stuff, the golf bags, the cars, even the good children, even the obedient children, even the children that give us pleasure, you know, those kinds of things, good things that we could want. Bottom line, if you got all the way down to the bottom, what do you want? Don't you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Isn't your heart's desire that as you go through life, the things that you're accomplishing today and tomorrow will lead more and more and more towards your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It ought to be that way in the church as well. The kinds of things that we're doing in the church ought to lead towards that work of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere we ought to be involved in the verbal proclamation of the Gospel, in the sharing Christ's love within the body, and in the practical application of the Scripture to our daily life. That is, finding out how the Lord would have me tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday deny myself, take up His cross, follow Him. Let's pray together. Father, in the quiet stillness, we would pray that You would use the Scripture. Father, we seek to avoid a human arrogance and pray that the Holy Spirit would come and pierce our hearts. Father, the Gospel is not only for the unbeliever, but the Gospel is for the believer as well. There's grace and there's repentance and there's forgiveness. And where we have not been involved in the preaching of the Gospel or where we have failed to show love to one another or where we have been unwilling to deny ourselves and to open up to allow Your Spirit to examine our hearts, we would confess that and ask You to forgive us. Father, we pray that as a body, You would work in us an ability to communicate, to meet people's needs, to address where they are, and to present to them the love and the fellowship in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that You would be with us by Your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, Amen.